Well, if you would, take out your Bibles with us this morning. Let's look together at the book of Genesis, chapter 46. Genesis, chapter 46. As we continue moving our way, verse by verse, through this first book of the Bible, we are nearing the end. We're going to begin reading in verse 1, Genesis 46, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to grab one of those in the seats in front of you. You'll find this passage on page 39 in those Bibles. Beginning in verse 1. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Isaac Sorry, And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again in Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones and their wives, in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now, these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jimuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi, Kershon, Gohath, and Merari, the sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah, but Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. The sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Yob, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elon, and Jalil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Paddan Aram, together with his daughter Dinah. Altogether his sons and his daughters numbered. 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Haggai, Shunai, Esbon, Eri, Arodi, and Ereli. The sons of Asher, Emnah, Ishva, Ishvi, Bariah, with Sarah their sister. And the sons of Bariah, Haber, and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob. Sixteen persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph, and Benjamin. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becher, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupim, Hupim, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel, who were born to Jacob, fourteen persons in all. The sons of Dan, Hushim. The sons of Naphtali, Jazil, Guni, Jazir, and Shalem. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were sixty-six persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, 
were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. I hope you listened very carefully. I pronounced each one of those names exactly the way they should be pronounced. I was in high school when my English teacher encouraged me to read Ayn Rand's famous book, The Fountainhead. I knew nothing about the book. I knew nothing about Ayn Rand. I knew nothing about her objectivist philosophy. There was an essay contest that was being put on by the Ayn Rand Foundation, and I read the book in order to write an essay for the essay contest, and I did not win. I'm sure I didn't even come close to winning. But reading the book did have a traumatic, the T, impact on my life. Uh, It shook me. Uh, Its hero, if you've never read the book, is a man named Howard Rourke. He's messed up from a Christian perspective, but he inspired me to think hard about pursuing excellence in everything. Uh, He inspired me to to not give in to the conventions of this world. Let others be carried along by the stream of culture, but I want to live for something greater. It was definitely a book that transformed my worldview. Now, Ayn Rand wrote as an atheist, and the title of her book, The Fountainhead, came from her statement that the ego is the fountainhead of human achievement. In other words, all true progress flows out of human pride. Socialism is evil because it prevents people from being true to their own creative spirits, to their own visions of what they want to accomplish with their lives. A person who settles a person who compromises, a person who isn't completely committed to accomplishing as fully and as perfectly as possible his or her dreams, isn't fully human. The individual human spirit, that is what matters. Anything that seeks to quench the human spirit, that is evil. Now as Christians, we cannot share Ayn Rand's philosophy. We are to strive for excellence, but we are not to strive for excellence out of some inner compulsion to be true to ourselves and to be true to our vision for our lives. No, as Christians, we are surrendered to someone else. We belong to Christ We trust our God. We want to pursue excellence in what He has called us to do in the vision that He has given us so that our lives bring honor to Him. It is Christ's vision for us that matters to us, not our inner vision for our own lives. As Christians, we have learned that all true and lasting progress flows not out of human pride, but out of the Spirit of God at work in His people. Everything done in human pride will be burnt up in the end. But what God has done by us, by His Spirit in us, will last forever. 
Now, the reason I say that is that Republicans often love Ayn Rand. Conservatives often love Ayn Rand. Capitalists often love Ayn Rand. And I want to make sure that we as Christians, even if you're a Republican Christian, a conservative Christian, or a capitalist Christian, I want to to make a statement up front that we cannot buy fully into Ayn Rand's philosophy. Human ego is not the fountainhead of progress. God is the fountainhead of anything that lasts into eternity. God's Spirit flows forth from Him into us, moves us into truly good deeds. This happens through faith in Jesus, and in the end, all the glory goes to God Himself. We must never be those who exalt the human ego. We boast in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the grace of our God. Now, I've entitled this message this morning, The Fountainhead, for a couple of different reasons. One, our passage focuses on Jacob. Our passage focuses on Israel. It lists for us the families that originated from him, the the families that have now come into Egypt. In 400 years, these families will leave Egypt, and they will be a nation. They will be the nation of Israel. Jacob is the fountainhead of this nation, and the rest of the Old Testament is going to tell the story of his descendants. More important than that, however, is how radically different Jacob is for us than that philosophy of Ayn Rand. Jacob is a hero for us, not because he was driven by an unwavering allegiance to his own ego, just the opposite. Jacob has become a man of humble faith looking to his God. He is driven by a desire to do God's will. Put yourself in Jacob's sandals for a moment. You've just received the most wonderful news in the world. The son you thought was dead is alive. Your son Joseph, whom you loved for so long and you thought he was gone and you said, I'm going to grieve him till the day I die. You've just heard news. Not only is he alive, he is the second most powerful man on planet Earth in that day. Right? He is, he is second in command in Egypt. You are so eager to see your son again. And Joseph has sent wagons for you. Joseph has sent a request to you. Move to Egypt. Come to the land of Goshen. Leave Canaan. Be close to me. Let me provide for you in your old age. This is quite a request. It's a wonderful request. You're going to be cared for in the midst of this severe famine. But but you're torn. After all, this is quite a move for a man of 130 years to make. You are weak. You are feeble. This trip is going to, be many, is going to mean many days in a wagon traveling through the desert. This is not going to be an easy move for you physically. 
here at the end of your life. Then there is the fact that you are sentimentally tied to your current home. Your beloved wife, Rachel, who was so dear to you, lies in her grave not too far away. You feel like a part of you was buried with her in that grave. Are you now going to leave her in her burial place far behind as you go to Egypt? Your own fathers are buried here in Canaan. Abraham is buried here. Isaac is buried here. Your mother, your grandmother, they're buried here. It's not some easy thing to just say, move to Egypt. And then here's the thing. On top of all this, Canaan is the promised land. This is the land that God said would be yours and your children's and your children's children. It is here that God has blessed you greatly. It is here that God revealed Himself to you. That you learned what it is to trust Him through trial and tribulation. You've walked with God in Canaan your, your whole life. Would leaving the promised land now be an act of unbelief? Would leaving the promised land be rejecting God and all that he's done? You see, Joseph's offer to Jacob was wonderful, but it also put Jacob certainly in a bit of turmoil, a bit of a dilemma. What, what should he do? What would you do? And what do you do when you are faced with difficult decisions? When a hard decision has to be made, do you become overcome with anxiety or distress? My desire in these next minutes is that this passage will give us some help, some comfort, some encouragement as we think about living in this world where sometimes we face turmoil and hard decisions. Verse 1 tells us that Jacob began the journey. He packed up his belongings. He headed south. The famine certainly played large in his decision. Yes, he was torn. Yes, he wanted to stay in Canaan and at least some part of himself. But there's a famine going on. And it is likely that all of his sons and their families are intent on going to Egypt for their survival. Certainly it seems as if God and His providence has brought this opportunity into Jacob's life. And so Jacob begins the trip. But notice where he stops. Jacob stops in Beersheba. Do you remember Beersheba? Beersheba is still around today, seventh largest city in Israel. It was here that God had provided water for Jacob's grandfather Abraham and for his father Isaac. It was here that God had first made room for this family in the promised land. This was Jacob returning to his hometown, a place he had lived as a young boy. It was here that God had spoken to Jacob's father, saying to him, Fear not. I am with you. I will bless you. I will multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. It was from Beersheba decades ago when he was still a young man that Jacob had fled his brother Esau, left his mom and his dad, headed to Uncle Laban's house. Back then, Jacob had been a deceiving scoundrel of a young man. 
was so different back then than what God had made him to be at this point in his life. It was on that journey, as Jacob was fleeing Beersheba, that God had first broken into his life with a vision of angels ascending and descending a staircase, getting Jacob's attention. There's more to life than you, Jacob. Jacob has not yet left the promised land. He has not yet crossed the boundaries out of Canaan. He stops in Beersheba and he worships. He offers sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And by the way, we're told that for a reason. God could have been called anything at the end of verse 1, but he's called the God of his father Isaac. Isaac is mentioned at the end of verse 1 to remind us that Jacob, what Jacob knew so well, it was at Beersheba that God had come and spoken to Isaac. Might God speak now? Might God now meet Isaac's son in this place? Give him guidance. Should Jacob keep going? Should Jacob cross the boundary? Should he go into Egypt? Well, in verse 2, we learn that God does come near to Jacob and speaks to him. Jacob, Israel, he has visions in the night. God says, Jacob, Jacob. Jacob says, here I am. This is what Jacob was longing for. I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Those words had to be so precious to Jacob. What comfort and peace they brought to his soul. Now, no more turmoil, no more dilemma, no reason to fear. He knew what he was doing. He knew it was blessed by God. And there are at least two truths in these words of God to Jacob that also apply to you if you are a Christian. And I think these truths should bring comfort and peace to your soul. Whatever your circumstances, whatever decisions lie before you. Truth number one, God is and ever will be with you. God is with you and he will forever be with you. After getting Jacob's attention, God says to him, I am God. Jacob came here seeking God's face. Jacob came here longing for guidance, longing for direction. Now God declares to Jacob that his prayers have been heard. Jacob, you have not been forsaken. I have seen your inner turmoil. I have seen your dilemma and your wrestling. Jacob, you have not been left alone. God speaks directly to Jacob's situation. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. Why not, God? Why should I not be afraid to go down to Egypt? For there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you. And I will also bring you up again. It is the certainty of God's presence that takes away fear. Jacob, you can take courage. Your God will be with you in Egypt. He will be there to bless you. And he will eventually bring you back home to Canaan. Now we need to make a careful distinction 
here. There is a very real sense in which God is with all people at all places at all times. This is what we talked about on Wednesday night. It doesn't matter whether you are a child of God or a hater of God. God is always with you in the sense that He is always with everyone. He is everywhere. There there is no place where He is not. It doesn't matter whether you're in America or Africa or Asia. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are. God is everywhere. Job 34, 21. His eyes are on the ways of a man. He sees all his steps. Proverbs 15, 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Jeremiah 23, 24. Can a man hide himself in secret places? so that I cannot see Him, declares the Lord? Do I not feel heaven and earth, declares the Lord? Now that's the omnipresence of God. He's everywhere. But that is not what is in view when God tells Jacob, I will be with you. For while God is with everyone everywhere at all times, that is not the same as His being with His people to care for them, to protect them, to bless them. Dear friends, there is no place that even Satan can go to escape God's presence. But God is not with Satan the way He promised to be with Jacob. God is not with Satan to bless him, to care for him. He is not committed to doing Satan good, just the opposite. God's presence is with Satan, wherever Satan may be, in order to ensure that God's good and sovereign plan is accomplished, a plan to utterly humiliate Satan, a plan to ultimately punish him forever. God is with Satan to do him harm, just, righteous, deserved harm. But when God says that He is with Jacob, and when He promises to be with us as His people, He is promising to be with us as our Father. He is promising to be with us, to do us good, to bless us, to provide for us. Isaiah 43, 2, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. In other words, dear friends, God's presence is the promise of His never-ending commitment to us. He will make sure that we are eternally provided for, that we are eternally protected. Our God is the ultimate Father, the one who leads us and provides for us and protects us. He's not like so many dads in our own culture who have forsaken their families. No, God will never leave us. He will never forsake His children. He will ensure that ultimately all goes well with us. This is what it means for Him to be with us. And what is the power of that truth? The power of that truth is that it gives us courage. In fact, over and over again, when God calls people in the Bible to do difficult things, it is this truth He brings to their attention. Moses... Go stand before Pharaoh. Tell him to let my people go. And Moses, Exodus 3.12, I will be with you. Joshua, lead my people into the promised land. 
Joshua, take them in there. Fight battles in my name against enemies who are greater and more powerful than you. Joshua, go fight these battles in Deuteronomy 31.23, Joshua 1.5, Joshua 3.7. I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Gideon, lead a small army of 300 Israelites against the vast Midianite army that has been terrorizing my people and laying waste to her land. The Midianites are going to come against you with swords and with spears, and they're going to have an army of thousands. You, Gideon, and your 300 men are going to take trumpets and clay pots. But Gideon, Judges 6.16, I will be with you. And that makes all the difference. Uh, The risen Lord Jesus looks at His disciples. He's about to send them out to the world where they're going to be laughed at, spat upon, arrested, beaten, tortured, killed. They are being given an impossible task. Make disciples of every nation. Jesus knows they are like sheep being sent to the slaughter. Where are they going to find the courage they need? Where are His disciples going to find the strength that they need to be faithful when the sword is at their throats? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Dear friends, one of the great blessings that we have if we have submitted to Christ is that this promise is ours. Our God is with us always. He is with us to bless us. Whatever way you choose in the decision, whatever way you have to take or that you think is wisest to take and you're struggling to know, know this, whether you go to the right or whether you go to the left, whether you stay in Canaan, whether you go to Egypt, God will be with you. He will provide. He will protect He will not forsake you because you went left when later you realize you should have gone right. It will be okay. He's not going to leave you. Truth number two. God is going to keep every promise He ever made to you. God is going to keep every promise He ever made to you. Whatever decisions lie ahead, whatever circumstances you face, you can be confident that the promises of God are not at stake. They're just not. If Christ is Savior, if Christ is your Savior, then all of God's promises to you are yes and amen in Him. Not one of them will fail. Not a single promise of God to you will fail. What does God say to Jacob? Even there, even in Egypt, I'm going to keep fulfilling my promise to you. Yes, I promised Abraham and I promised Isaac that they would become a great nation. Yep, I promised them that they would inherit the promised land. But dear old Jacob, don't you doubt for a minute that I can do that while they're in Israel. I mean, while they're in Egypt, right? I can fulfill my promises in Egypt just as well as I can fulfill them in Canaan. I can send you to Egypt and I can bring you back. It's going to be 400 years. But over those 400 years, the people of Israel are going to multiply, the nation is going to explode, and they're going to come back to the promised land, a true people. By the way, this is really 
where the rest of our passage comes in. All the rest of these verses, that list, all of those names are meant to emphasize this truth. God keeps His promises. After Jacob hears these words from God, he goes into Egypt. And verses 8 through 27 tell us all about Israel, his 12 sons, and their children. And it appears that what God wants us to do with this list is math. So are you ready? We're going to do a little math. We like math, right? We like math. It points to the glory of God. Notice verse 15. Look at verse 15. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Paddan Aram, together with his daughter Dinah. Altogether, his sons and his daughters numbered 33. Now it says his sons and his daughters, but he seems to be using a generic, commonly used phrase there for giving these numbers. He's actually not counting daughters. He mentions Dinah, but she's not included in the count. The only folks included in the count are the males, the sons of Israel and his grandsons. So, the number of sons and grandsons that come from Leah, 33. Look at verse 18. Verse 18. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. So through Zilpah, Jacob's concubine wife, we have 16 sons and grandsons. So we have 33, then 16. Look at verse 22. Verse 22. These are the sons of Rachel, who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. Okay, so we add 14 to that number. Now look at verse 25. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. So we have seven more through Bilhah, Jacob's other concubine wife. Now, math whizzes in the room. What's our total? 33 plus 16 plus 14 plus 7. It's a total of 70. Now look at verses 26 and 27. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Jacob who were born in him in Egypt were two, and all the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. So we have two numbers here. We have the number 70, which is the number we get of adding the sons and the grandsons. But the other number we have is 66. Where did we get that from? Why does it say 66? Why was the actual number of folks who came to Egypt 66? Well, first, we're told that Joseph's two sons were born in Egypt. So Joseph's two sons didn't come to Egypt. They lived there their whole lives. They were born there. So that gets us from 70 to 68. And then remember, Judah had two sons, two very wicked sons, Ur and Onan, who if you remember back in uh, Genesis, I believe it was 38, right? They, they were killed in Canaan. So that takes us down to 66. So the full uh, sons and grandsons of, of Israel, 70, but 66 actually make the trip to Egypt. So what? What's the point? Who cares? Well, it seems that what's happening here is that God is preparing His people to marvel at what He's doing. Because included in the same scroll as the book of Genesis, given to the people of Israel by Moses, was also the book of Numbers. And Numbers 26 
has the list of the people who enter the promised land. And it's amazing. There were 66 people that left the promised land and went to to Egypt. There will be 601,730 that go back to the promised land. 66, 600,000. What's the point? God said, I will multiply you. I will make you into a nation. This is meant to teach us God keeps his word. When he says to Jacob, I can fulfill my promises to you even in Egypt. He does. And the people who read this scroll from the hands of Moses, they were among the 600,000. And they read and they said, look at that. There were 66 of us when we went to Egypt. Now we're going back to the promised land. Look at all of us. God's word is true. He can be trusted. And by the way, why does God say to Jacob, I am God, the God of your father? He's reminding Jacob, have I not been faithful to your father? Was I not faithful to Isaac? Was I not faithful to Abraham? Do you doubt my faithfulness to you? Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church, look back on God's faithfulness to our forefathers in the faith. Picture that great arena of the saints who have gone before us and they're rooting us on and they're encouraging us to run our race well. Don't stop believing. Keep your eyes on the prize. Trust Jesus in every circumstance and they're rooting us on. Is there one of them? Can you think of even one true believer who can stand before you and say, God let me down. There was a promise he failed to keep. Not one. God has never failed to keep a single promise to any of His people, and He will not fail now. The God of our fathers was faithful to them, and He will be faithful to us, and He will be faithful to the next generation of Christians. Kids, teenagers in here, God will be faithful to you as well. He is a faithful God. So, could it be there are any in this room who have not turned from their sins to trust this God? Could it be there are any of you not truly following Jesus, but you're just following your own wills and your own desires? You're living according to ego. What you want, your own will, your own desires, that drives your life. If so, everything you are and everything you do will be burnt up in the end. And I plead with you, this God is good. This God is trustworthy. When he says that if you will turn from your sins and trust his son, he will bless you forever and ever, bring you to himself safely. When he says it, you can take it to the bank. He means it. Will you humble yourself like a little child? Will you trust him? In Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church, in light of these truths, Let us take heart. Let us be encouraged. No matter what tomorrow brings, no matter what the dilemma is we face, no matter what the circumstances, our God will be with us and He will fulfill every promise He's ever made to us. And by the way, there's some pretty good promises in there. Amen? Amen. So let's pray together.